Hi, this is Atatarki, the author of Evidence-Based Recruiting, and you're listening to my quest for the best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Ada Tarki. Ada is CEO and Managing Director of ECA, a 120-person specialized executive search firm. He leads ECA's private equity and venture capital practice where he supports PE-owned, VC-owned, and other high-growth companies filling C-level positions. Prior to founding ECA, Ada spent six years as a management consultant at LEK Consulting. He earned his master's degree in economics and finance from the Stockholm School of Economics, makes contributions to Harvard Business Review and Forbes on cutting-edge recruiting topics, and he lives in beautiful Santa Monica, California. Ada is here to talk about his book, Evidence-Based Recruiting, How to Build a Company of Star Performers, through systematic and repeatable hiring practices. Welcome, Ada. Thank you for having me, Bill. Ada, I'd love to hear your response to the question of when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? George Orwell was the person who probably inspired my thinking the most as a teenager. I felt that he speaks with unusual clarity about topics that are very difficult to wrap your head around. And what I mean by that is... Admittedly, when I grew up, I had a fascination for history. And um, I read a lot about the Soviet history and the history of communism. And they were right next door to Sweden, obviously. And it was still, Soviet Union was still around when I was growing up in Sweden. And there was this mystery around it of how could an ideology that wanted so much good go so wrong? And I felt George Orwell described that with unusual clarity for me. And that really inspired me to try to cut through all the clutter and get to the core of things. Interesting. Do you think that that influence was prevalent or present when you were making a decision about what career to pursue or what field of study to pursue in college? I do think so. I feel Orwell helped me understand that by focusing on economic policy, you could have a very big impact on a lot of folks. And also staying skeptical to your own ideals and the difference between what you would want the world to look like and what it will look like when you make certain decisions. These unintended consequences fascinated me And I started looking into economic policy. And that was an area that was gave me a lot of aha moments of why is it so that people with such good intentions designing economic policy aren't able to have the impact they want. And that inspired me to go and study economics and pursue that field in college. It might have had a less of a career choice for me when I started my career. But I feel like his thinking has influenced me throughout my life. When firms come to ECA, what are the characteristics of the PE and VC firms who hire you? What is it that leads them to say, we're not going to do this on our own. We need external help and in particular, the help that you offer. For one thing, these firms realize that 
you cannot achieve extraordinary results without having extraordinary talent. If you want to be the next Google of the world, if you want to be the next, even I call it unicorn company of the world, where you've achieved extraordinary results, you need to have the talent that helps you get there. It's not just about having the right strategy or right operating model. You have to have the best talent on board. And the impact that that specific individual can have on an organization is extraordinary. Describe what you mean by extraordinary impact. Yeah, so I tried to look at this when I was writing my book, saying, okay, how much of an impact can an individual have? So I analyzed the performance of 24,000 ATP tennis players. And I tried to look at how much of the value from the ATP tennis tournaments did the top players take home? And I noticed that the top 10% players took home 93% of the prize money. So it's even more than 80-20. It's very much skewed. Absolutely. And if you want to put that into business terms, an extraordinary computer engineer is not going to write 100 times more code than an average computer engineer. But the result of the code they write could mean that billions of people use Google every day as opposed to AltaVista, Bing, or Yahoo search engines. And by you focusing on finding that extraordinary talent, you could have create that sort of value for your own company. So tell me more about your perspective about recruiting people for senior level positions. Why is it such a high stakes operation in terms of the output, in terms of the value they bring, but also leaving it open? A lot of times companies will choose to not make a move instead of making a wrong move. And that's also very costly. Can you explain your perspective on that? When I spoke to Jim Williams at TPG, who's placed over 100 CEOs and hundreds of other C-suite positions for TPG's portfolio companies, and TPG is one of the leading private equity funds out there for those who don't know. He said that he, they've analyzed their portfolio companies, hundreds of portfolio companies they've had over the years to understand how much of an impact a CEO can have on a company's performance. And what they found out really impacted how much time they spend obsessing about finding the right CEO for the company. They found out that about a quarter of a company's value comes from the performance of the CEO. That's why they spend a lot of time obsessing about finding the right CEO. That's why they pay extraordinarily well for their CEOs, because they know that that person can have such an impact on the company. Well, that is truly extraordinary. And it also reminds me of how often you're referring to and bringing in lessons from professional poker tournaments and poker players who also engage in high stakes decision making. What led you to bring those, that world into the ideas in your book? I have been fascinated by the similarities between poker and recruiting. Because in both fields, the outcome that you're dealing with is both determined by your skill, but also a little bit of chance. If I sit down and play with a professional poker player, I could get lucky and get the right cards and win a hand here and there. But I find it highly unlikely that I would play 100 hands with them and win the entire tournament, which I've had a humbling experience in many times. And similarly so, 
recruiters who follow a more disciplined approach, a more evidence-based approach to recruiting will consistently have better recruiting outcomes. Yes, any hiring manager could get lucky and make a good hiring decision once in a while, but they will not beat kind of like the hiring managers who follow a more systematic approach. That's right. Their entire, the span of successful hiring decisions, that record speaks more highly than any one particular outstanding decision that they've made. That's right. It kind of reminds me of the distinctions you make in the book, saying that many times people, especially if they gather together in a committee to form a hiring committee, they take more of a Frankenstein approach than a Moneyball approach. Can you break down what that the distinction means to you? Yeah, the distinction means that oftentimes these hiring committees, they start with saying, okay, who are some of our best performers currently? Oh, well, Bill is a superstar because he's such a good communicator. And then you have Elena, she's a brilliant thinker. And then you have so-and-so and they, they have great kind of like technical skills. And then they say, we need someone who has all of those things. And when you try to put someone together that has all those skill sets, you end up with a Frankenstein. So how often is it that you try to find someone that is a superstar in all these different aspects and you end up with someone who is actually a superstar in those aspects? Not very often, right? But what you need to do is to follow the Moneyball approach to recruiting instead. And if you've read the book or watched the movie, you might have noticed that the brilliance behind Moneyball was not to try to find someone who was picture perfect and a superstar in every aspect that you can think of. It was to narrow down the number of criteria that he was looking for in order to be able to find someone who was truly a superstar in that one or two criteria that he was looking for, not a set of 10 to 20 to 30 criteria. Right. So the Oakland A's, they needed to get people on base. They didn't need someone who could bat and hit more home runs than anyone and just meet impossible criteria. They looked systematically for people who could get on base and they looked for people who could bat against certain types of pitchers who had caused problems and helped them get ahead. It was a very unintuitive way of approaching it. Yet when you combine that with the context of what they were looking for, it really made a difference. That's right. And if you've seen the movie, you might recall that Billy Bean was being criticized for the general manager of the Oakland A's, was being criticized for recruiting a team of so-called freaks, people who walked funny, people who threw the ball funny, people who looked funny, people who didn't have the confidence to get a girlfriend, all these things, right? And people were saying, well, if the guy doesn't have the confidence to have a girlfriend, how could he even be a good baseball player? What does he say about his performance as a baseball player? And the answer is, it says absolutely nothing about his performance as a baseball player. These things are not related. What you really need to look for is his performance as a baseball player for the specific position that you're looking at. And a lot of hiring managers are still using those antiquated methods of trying to piece together information and say, oh, well, this person didn't look very confident in the interview, therefore they're not going to perform well in this job. Or this person didn't talk to the secretary and therefore they have poor interpersonal skills, et cetera, et cetera. And those types of methods are not very predictive of on-the-job success. Now, you didn't say this in your book explicitly, but I think that you'd agree that the most commonly used tools for 
hiring even a senior level position are a person's resumes and references. And they're often two of the worst predictors of a candidate's success on a role. You point out that looking for the GMA, the general mental ability, and another factor offer a much stronger correlation for success. Explain what the factor is and why these two things combined offer such a powerful predictor. You want someone who has high ethical standards. And your question might be, okay, well, if I'm interviewing for a CEO, do I really just want to go by their GMA and how ethical they are? I would answer, when I'm recruiting for a CEO, those things are table stakes for me. I start with someone who's very smart and a very good problem solver. The reason for that is that today's economy is more fast-paced than ever before. The old way of thinking about how you kind of like strategize for a business is that you capture a segment of the market and then you erect high barriers to entry to protect yourself against competitors. And if that method works, then you don't really need to be a huge problem solver. What you need to be is someone who can kind of like optimize the business and run it at a very low kind of like cost level so that you can extract as much profits as possible. What you need today, though, is someone who can kind of like tackle a complete variety of different set of threats that might face your business or set of opportunities that you want to go after. And in that context, you really need someone who is exceptional at facing new problems all the time. And folks with a high GMA will be able to do that. You also need, of course, someone who's very ethical. That goes without saying. But then when you are evaluating a CEO for a position, looking just at the resume, looking at references, or even sitting and having kind of like a unstructured conversation will not lead you to the results you want. What will lead you to the results is then starting with a high GMA and great ethical standards, and then applying a more structured approach to doing these interviews. And research has shown that you can improve your on-the-job predictions with about 30% by following a more structured approach to your interviews. For listeners who are curious about GMA and ethics, how is it that you would evaluate those fairly and consistently? Because you want to make sure that you're testing for general mental aptitude. Are you looking at test scores? Are you offering a unique exam or assessment to take? And then also with ethics, if you ask someone, are you an honest, ethical person? I'm pretty sure that every, every person seeking a job is going to answer affirmatively. How do you get to actually understanding that from a number of different viewpoints, which would validate it for the person who is going to be, be their hiring manager or the, the company that's going to be welcoming them in as a leader? You're asking some very great questions, Bill. <laughs> I can tell you that the worst way of trying to predict the GMA is by using brain teasers in interviews, which a lot of firms still do. And unfortunately, using a... In including very well-known firms. Absolutely. <laughs> unfortunately, that is not a good way of predicting someone's GMA. One step up from that is to look at someone's GPA. The problem with that approach is oftentimes for the senior management positions, the GPAs that you have are from school performance years ago, and it's not very predictive anymore. The second problem with that is that about 40% of high school graduates are graduating with an A average nowadays. So the grade inflation has kind of like taken away the value of that signal. The third way you could do it is to use standardized tests that are offered by companies. 
for hiring purposes, and they're pretty good. There are a number of those test providers out there. I won't plug one of their names into your segment here. Uh, <laughs> in my opinion, the best predictor of GMA is SAT scores or GRE scores or one of the other ones that are used for higher education admittance. So that's the first part. And for testing someone's ethical kind of like standards, if you will, following a similar approach, unfortunately, when it comes to how ethical someone is, it's easier to find out if someone is unethical than finding that someone is very ethical. Because a lot of things that you notice are negative signs about someone. And you could screen out at the bottom of the barrel. You can screen out a lot of candidates, but you won't know who's actually the most ethical person at the top of the barrel, if you will, because it's very difficult to distinguish from their behavior if they've made superb ethical decisions or good just good ethical decisions. So if someone has gone to jail and you could see that from their criminal records, might raise a flag. If someone has faced bankruptcy, it raises a flag. If you know them to your personal networks, you could check for that. If you don't know them, but you can find out through your personal networks and do a so-called kind of like a back channel reference check, that's also a very good sign. There are companies that specialize in reaching out to former colleagues of prospective candidates and ask them about how ethical someone is. So those are some of the methods you could use to make sure that you're not getting someone on board who's made unethical decisions in the past. You could also, of course, see how they behave during the interview process. Someone who says that their expected salary is, call it $200,000, and then towards the end stages of the process, notice that, well, the company actually might be willing to pay a little bit more, and now I'm going to ask for $250,000. That, to me, doesn't sound like someone who keeps their promises. And they've gone into the interview process with the pretense that they are willing to accept $200,000. And now they're kind of like changing everything. Uh, to me, that doesn't seem fair. Now, one of the things that's very interesting is that you want to find people who are bright, who have high GMAs, and people who are ethical, because that explains how disasters happen like Enron, where you had very, very bright people with very, very low ethics. In many high-performing organizations, especially in the high-tech world, you need to have people who are very bright, very capable, self-starters, and they don't necessarily have to be the highest ethical. You don't want to have people who have you know, questionable ethical standards, but you want to have a lot of other characteristics. You talk about six traits that are your baseline for all job candidates in order for you to represent them in some capacity. What are those other characteristics? Because that helps give a much fuller picture of what people should be looking for, as well as how candidates should be presenting themselves? Great question. And what you're saying about tech firms is very important. The former head of MI6, UK secret service agency said, we would be very envious of everything these tech companies know about people nowadays. MI6 didn't know as much about you as these tech companies know about you. And with great kind of like powers comes a great responsibility that you should use that information correctly and not in an unethical way, right? It, absolutely. I mean, there are people who are first-level database analysts who might be in charge of credit card <laughs> databases for purchases for you know, larger mid-sized companies. And you need to make sure that people in those positions are screened to make sure that they're going to make decisions that are in the best interest of the customers as well as the employer. 
Yes. So what else do you want to look for when you're interviewing candidates or you're evaluating candidates? You want to make sure that someone is reliable or conscientious. You want to make sure that they have what we in recruiting terms say that they have freedom from negativity, meaning that they don't absorb a lot of negative energy or on the brighter side are a positive person. You want to make sure that they are someone who enjoy learning. Because as I was saying, in today's economy, things are going to change fairly fast. And the role you're accepting today might not be the role that the company needs you to perform in three years from now or five years from now. And if you're not someone who's open to learning or don't enjoy learning, you're not going to do well with the company long-term. These are a few of the things that I advise my clients to look for. And another phrase that I think that people will be very interested in taking away from this interview is when you advise people to hire missionaries, not mercenaries. What does that speak to, Atta? That means be patient and find folks that are really good fit for you and a long-term fit. Don't go and just try to pay more to hire other employees. What you do want is someone who gets energy from the mission of your organization, what your company is doing, and how they're doing the work. They find happiness, derive happiness in the work from beyond the paycheck. If all you are to them is a paycheck, they're going to leave to the next highest bidder. But if they are getting value from being part of this organization beyond the paycheck, you can keep them longer. And some companies I work with, they scratch their heads and say, well, how can we do that? We're not revolutionizing the world. So one chair factory that I worked with, they manufactured office chairs. They were saying, we can't do that. We manufacture office chairs. No one's going to feel like they're saving the world coming in, putting together office chairs. But when I looked at their data and I spoke to their employees, I noticed that their happiest employees were, first of all, those who lived close to the factory, didn't have a long commute, and it was nice for them to be part of a company that was doing good for the local community by providing jobs to the local community. The company was sponsoring local community events, and they enjoyed coming there and doing something that had a physical end product. They were with their hands, putting together, they could see at the end of the day, and getting that enjoyment from their work was important to them. And we showed them that they had recruited a ton of folks in the past that lived further away from the factory, and a lot of those people would end up leaving the job within a few months. They had also hired people from other fields or other backgrounds, which indicated that they were not really interested in this core work that the company was doing. And as soon as the economy picked up, those folks went back to their old line of jobs. That's a great illustration of being able to look at the data to find a good fit for a company culture. I was smiling as you were describing that because I was thinking how important it is to me and other firms that I work with to give some sort of practical exercise for someone who's taking on a new role. And it might be you know, writing some strategy or doing an analysis or describing a process that they were involved in. And then you could get a lot of interesting information from that. One of the cartoons you had included in the book now became one of my favorite examples of that. And that was the IKEA interviewer where a candidate is welcomed into the office and the hiring manager says, have a seat and on the floor are all the parts to assembling the chair. <laughs> yes. And growing up in Sweden, of course, that cartoon is extra funny to me. What is another one of your favorite ways of assessing whether someone brings the skills and is willing to spend an hour or two doing some work 
to show a sample of work product for a high-level position. Yes, I do want to point out that work samples are very different than job assessments. Yes. A lot of companies we work with, they ask candidates, well, bring a sample of your work with you. That's problematic. Because yes. you don't know if they did that together with someone. You don't know if they did it and then someone else came and helped them with the difficult parts. All these problems that arise from it, right? And oftentimes, if they really did great and brilliant work, then you get into the ethical part where the candidates who are showing you their most brilliant work probably are not as ethical as you want them to be because that's proprietary and they should be protecting that information. Now, going to the job knowledge test instead, I find that the best job knowledge tests are the ones that you custom design for yourself. Don't go and buy one off the shelf. Try to think about what are some of the key problems we faced with this role and what are some of the key challenges we want this person to tackle in this role and design a specific test that tackles that. So one private equity firm that we worked with, it started with a Frankenstein type description of what they needed. They needed a little bit of everything. I was like, what really sets your brilliant employees apart from the other ones, the ones that are really the, your top performers? It's like, well, they're extremely good at evaluating investment opportunities. So, okay, well, how do they evaluate the investment opportunities? Walk me through the steps. And one of the steps was they read an investment memorandum, and then they come up with a set of questions that they want to investigate about this company. So let them ha do that. Let them read an investment memorandum and write you a two-page memo on these are the questions I would like to dig deeper into. And the beauty of that approach is that it's not only allows you to dig deeper into that topic. It also allows you to dig deeper into that topic in a less biased fashion. One of the candidates they interviewed for this role, he had recently moved to the US from France. And in the verbal interview, he did just all right not that great. And one of the investors was saying, well, his communication skills aren't great. And one of the roles in this job is to come and convince the investment committee that we should invest in this asset. And the other person said, well, it's much more important that he can pick a good asset to invest in than the fact that he can kind of like brag about it. So let him do the test anyways. And when they did the test, they blinded all the names of the participants. And he scored on a kind of like a joint tie number one place in that test, kind of like outperforming a number of McKinsey consultants, BCG consultants, et cetera, that had superb English. And I bet they did something that I always think is one of the biggest mistakes to avoid, which is not figuring out what your success criteria is before you start interviewing. And I bet they said here, in order to score this high, they've got to get these questions right the A plus answer to this question is gonna contain these four components. By defining that in advance, it also reduces the level of bias, doesn't it? That's exactly what they did, and you're 100% correct. What a lot of companies do is, they go into an interview and say, I'll figure it out during the interview. That's awful. A step better than that is to say, these are the skills we need in the job, and then these are the questions that we're gonna to ask to evaluate those skills. But that's still not great because you also will be biased in the interview. If you only know which skills you're evaluating for and what questions you're going to use, you could still get biased. The best method is what you described. 
is to have the skills, have the questions, but also then know what is a good answer versus a bad answer. What you don't want is someone to say, well, I just wanted to see how they are thinking about it, or I'll know good when I see it. No, you won't. You'll be biased by a number of other factors. And again, that type of attitude is very much representative of people who don't hire every day. They're just saying, well, I'm going to rely on my intuition. I'm going to rely on chemistry in the, the conversation with the interviewer. And they don't really take the scientific approach. They may dabble with different aspects of it. But I think for really high stakes hiring, for high stakes decision making, you ought to be following proven methods and using people who have really good experience in this area. Many times people say, well, my gosh, they're just going to go on LinkedIn because that's where all the good candidates are anyway. What else are they missing when they have that approach? Well, if, if they're going on LinkedIn, they're already doing better than some 80% of US companies that only follow the post and pray method, which <laughs> is that they post a job to a job board, get down on their knees, put their hands together and start praying that candidates are going to apply for the job. That approach does not work in an economy where employment rates are at a historical low. But when you are going on LinkedIn, that's a good start. What you need to do on top of that is to try to see how effective you are at reaching out to the right candidates and engaging those right candidates to apply for your job and be interested in your job. And a lot of companies are not doing that. What we do internally is we constantly A-B test different search strategies, different engagement platforms, LinkedIn versus other platforms different messaging about the job and how we're trying to get the candidates to engage and not to only see who's responding to our job requests or uh, job opportunities or who's clicking on something. We track it all the way to replacement and beyond. And by testing these things on a continuous basis, you can continue to improve your results. And I really like how you described that. Are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I am. All right. First question up. Describe three components of your morning routine for an ideal workday. Three components of my morning routine are, first of all, having my kids jump on me on bed, uh, <laughs> but which, which is fantastic because I don't need an alarm clock to do what I like doing best, which is wake up early in the morning, get my day started early because that's when I feel I'm the most productive and most creative, and then also use a to-do list. And at the start, I asked about a person who inspired you growing up. Now I want you to name a song that inspired you in some significant way growing up. A song that inspired me. Let me see. It's not going to have a huge meaning to the listeners here, but it's a song by Lisa Ekdal, which essentially says, You are a fairy tale. Duat and Saga is the name of the song. And... To me, the song is very much about how one person can have an enormous impact on your life. If you could put a slogan about your work on a billboard that every key business leader who was looking to make a key hiring decision had to drive past each morning for a month, what would it say on that billboard? Hire well, manage little. What do you mean by that? Describe it. Spend a lot of time obsessing about finding the right talent to begin with. And then you can spend less time trying to coach that person and use the apprenticeship model to bring up their performance. You don't need to micromanage them. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief 
that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I stopped playing basketball. I love playing basketball, but I also realized that I'm only human and having three kids and running a business and writing a book and playing basketball at the same time was just getting too much. And by me putting that aside, I feel like I've been able to become happier because I'm no longer stressed out that I'm trying to juggle too many things. So a lot of times people who are making hiring decisions don't give them enough priority and they don't do enough preparation. What would you say is the single biggest mistake that people make who already are convinced that evidence-based recruiting is what they want to do, but they want to do it on their own? When they're doing it in-house, what do you think is the biggest mistake that they make? The biggest mistake they make is to fall into the kind of like what I call the Miller Liar illusion of recruiting. Are you familiar with that illusion? It's these two lines and they have an outward error, inward error. And at least whenever I see this illusion, and it's an illusion that has existed for over 100 years, I can't help but to think, are those two lines really the same length? Are you sure they're not the same length? And intuitively, I fall into that trap every time. Logically, I know that they should be the same length. And the same thing happens with recruiting. Logically, a lot of hiring managers know that obsessing about recruiting and spending more time on hiring the best performer they can is the best way of building a team. But intuitively, when they start a recruiting process, their gut feeling is telling them, oh, I should spend some time putting out the current fire in the business instead. I should spend time trying to provide some apprenticeship and mentorship to someone right in front of me, as opposed to spending that time on improving my recruiting results. And my advice to those hiring managers is don't fall into that trap. Reserve a lot of time for improving your recruiting results, and you'll also achieve better recruiting results as part of that and build better teams. What about companies that hire other recruiting firms who claim to use these principles of evidence-based recruiting? Are there questions that companies should ask in hiring a recruiting firm that help guarantee that they're going to get a firm that understands how to use these, has experience using them, and will help it become the most effective and satisfying experience of hiring yet. Take a look under the hood. Don't try to just understand what are the results you guys have achieved in the past. A lot of companies, when they're trying to hire a recruiting firm, do the mistake of asking, how many candidates have you placed in our industry? How many candidates have you placed in a similar role? How many candidates have you placed in a similar geography? That's just kind of like going to the end result and trying to look for kind of like a set of trophies. And that's not following an evidence-based method. Instead, try to understand their methodology. How many recruiters are you dedicating to our search? How many candidates are these recruiters reaching out to? How do they find these candidates? How do you evaluate these candidates on paper? How do you evaluate these candidates in your interview process? Do you follow systematic interview process? How do you help us set up a better skills-based assessment. And if you try to understand their methodologies better, you'll have better recruiting results. Well, Ada, you've shared so many great ideas with me today on my quest for the best. And everyone listening is going to benefit from hearing about the way that you found really valuable information about history from George Orwell, about understanding the types of companies that benefit from evidence-based recruiting and understanding some of the many distinctions of what to look for and how to approach this to get better outcomes for your high-stakes hires. 
So I want to thank you so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Bill, thanks so much for having me. Ada, before we say goodbye for now, where can people find out more about you and your work online with evidence-based recruiting? They can go to my website or our company website, eca-partners.com, and they can click on my name for my contact details, or they can click on resources to find out where they can purchase my book. Terrific. We're going to link to your book, your company's page, and the other, some of the other resources we mentioned on during this interview. We want people to find out these details so they can put them to use in their companies. Atatarki, author of Evidence-Based Recruiting, How to Build a Company of Star Performers Through Systematic and Repeatable Hiring Processes. Thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.